This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, a podcast where we take a look at the interconnectedness of our medieval past, the stories it holds, and how these stories directly shape the world we live in today. I'm your host, Jonathan, and here we are, the end of season three. Well, not quite the end, actually. Today is a special day, folks. We are releasing two episodes, yet they do go hand in hand because as we wrap up season three, we have reached the climax. We have reached the Norman conquest of England. And there is such a finality to that term Norman conquest of England, but I'm here to tell you that it will extend beyond this season of the podcast. Yes, we will return. Well, we'll return to England, of course, but we'll return to a very different England when we come back in future seasons. But today, again, a two-parter. This will be the 16th episode of our third season of the podcast. And this episode, episode 50, is entitled The Death of a Legend, The Death of an Age. Let's get this started. The year was 250 CE. Roman Emperor Decius ordered the slaughter of those who refused to denounce their filthy desert cult and its single all-powerful god and revert back to worshipping the old gods led by Jupiter. In Ephesus, in modern-day Turkey, seven believers ran from Decius's murderous enforcers just after gifting the poor all of their belongings. They ran, and they were chased. They retreated into a cave to escape the already blood-soaked swords of their would-be assailants, but one of them caught wind of their hideout and soon sealed the cave shut. Those seven Christians were stuck in that cave with no way out. Eventually, they slept. It wasn't until more than 300 years later, under the rule of Emperor Theodosius, that that cave was unsealed in order to be repurposed into a cattle pen. To the cattleman's shock, those seven men were just waking up with the sunlight pouring in. The cattlemen ran. The men wandered into Ephesus as they knew the way. But they walked into a completely different town altogether. This wasn't Ephesus they walked into. Couldn't be. Ephesus, since they last saw it the day before last, it was a flame. Christians were, were, were mutilated in the streets and homes and shops were burned. It was chaos. This wasn't even a town. This... This was a city they'd walked into, a bustling one. No one was stabbed or or burnt for their beliefs. No, this was altogether peaceful. And there were crosses on the buildings just about everywhere they looked. In fact, these townspeople noticed their peculiar habits and coins from the reign of Decius centuries earlier that they used to purchase food. These townspeople secretly summoned the bishop of Ephesus, who immediately met the men. The bishop led them through a series of questions, which ultimately resulted in the men's story as to how they ended up where they were. They would spend the rest of their days praising God and dying in peace, knowing that Christianity had overcome Roman paganism in the end. Roughly 815 years later, Thousands of miles to the northwest, King Edward of England began laughing loudly and uncontrollably, seemingly for no reason at all. 
He was feasting with his nobles there in the spring of 1065, just after Lent. Every head craned to see what had the king laughing so hard, but there was apparently no reason. Edward was a hothead, a man with, well, with an explosive temper. However, when feasting, he enjoyed the reverie and camaraderie shared amongst his countrymen and women. He laughed at their jokes, he, he enjoyed the stories, he even was known to jest those around him when the atmosphere was right, but, but laugh with no obvious discernible reason? This was quite unlike the old king. He eventually wiped the tears from his eyes and cheeks as his laughter quieted to a chuckle. People returned slowly to their conversations, no one willing to risk asking why the king was laughing like a madman at the head of the table. Later, however, after the feast had died down and his guests had slowly trickled off to the comforts of their beds, a few men in the group helped their aging king to his bedchambers, not only for his own good, but for his safety. These were darkening times for a somewhat prosperous kingdom. Candles lit the bedchambers, or the bedchamber as they entered, servants having lit them a few minutes before. One was currently preparing to assist the lady of the kingdom, Queen Edith, for bed. As they helped Edward to the side of his bed, one of the men spoke. It was Earl Harold Godwinson. According to the Vita Edwardi, Earl Harold glanced at the other two gentlemen as if to say, <laughs> wish me luck, and then said to his king, we saw something unusual today, Lord King, by which we were all greatly astonished. Edward removed his crown. Earl Harold took it, handed it to one of the other two men present, a local bishop, who then carried the crown to a nearby table, gently putting it down. The old man asked what it was that astonished his greatest nobleman so much. Harold says, We've never seen you laugh so openly with, well, without cause as today. There was silence. The earl, the bishop, and the other man, a local abbot, all looked at one another, unsure of how their king would respond. Well, if any man was to confront King Edward about his peculiar behavior, Harold Godwinson was the safest to do so, which put the holy men at ease. The old king sighed a deep, breathy sigh, the kind of sigh that whispered a wisdom only gained through time and tragedy. Edward quietly chuckled once more, but stopped, put his hands on his knees, and said, staring at the floor in front of his feet, I saw wonderful things and therefore I did not laugh without a cause. Once again, the three men glanced, confused at one another. Harold spoke first with a friendly smile and asked, What made you laugh then, my lord? The old king laughed again briefly. The three men nervously chuckled with him, waiting. Servants helped the king out of his boots as the bishop gently asked the king again to share what was so funny. Edward was helped under the covers, Finally, the abbot asked about the king's reasons for such grand laughter. Resting his head, Edward smiled and said the following, It is hundreds of years from which time the seven sleepers rested in the cave on Mount Celion, near Ephesus, on their right side. But now, after we began to feast, they turned over to their left side, and on that side they will lie for up to seventy-four years. This rotation, without a doubt, predicts a fearful omen for mortals. For those things which the Lord warns in the Gospels will be executed in these 74 years in many ways. 
For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be great earthquakes throughout the lands, and there will be both pestilences and famine and terror from the sky and great signs. Wars and oppressions of nations will torment the human race incomparably, and there will be changes of many kingdoms. The old man's voice, strong, still yet fading, trailed off into a deep sleep. The three men, Earl Harold, the bishop, and the abbot, quietly retreated from the room. They walked together down the corridors silently, thinking and reflecting upon what their king had just uttered hardly sounded like good news. They all knew the legend of the Seven Sleepers, having been part of medieval Christian folklore for centuries, but it was nothing more than allegory. Certainly no man could survive sleeping in a cave for centuries, but it went to show that in time, Christian faith will overcome all obstacles. It was a positive, forward-moving faith they knew in their hearts. They reached the door to the outside, and they stood talking to one another about what their king's vision could have meant. It certainly didn't sound good. It didn't sound like an English triumph, that's for sure. They established that they would work together to find the answers. They formed a team with which to seek out the truth. And the first truth was to establish whether the Seven Sleepers legend was actually true. Was there, really, a cave near Ephesus? Harold volunteered a trusted soldier, the bishop volunteered a trusted cleric, and the abbot volunteered a trusted monk. These three would travel to the court of Constantinople, meet with the emperor there, and ask for permission to be allowed into the cave. When the three men arrived, they found an emperor all too willing to accept their gifts and company, and in exchange, the Byzantine emperor allowed safe passage. When the Englishmen reached Mount Celion, they indeed found the seven sleepers' signs related to them by their three benefactors, according to their king. They prayed, left gifts, and returned home to tell the good news. This legend is recorded in the Vita Edwardi, often mentioned on this season of the podcast. The Vita Edwardi was a biography commissioned by Queen Edith many years after the death of her husband Edward and the deaths of her brothers at the hands of Duke William. This story is in all likelihood false in every way, but it serves a purpose, as does all things written, whether true or not. It is posthumous stories like this, as we'll eventually get on to on the podcast, that, that will catapult King Edward from mere king of the English to a saintly order among mortal men. King Edward will, with the help of miracle stories like that of his vision of the seven sleepers, soon become known to history simply as Edward the Confessor. However, still, I love this story. You know, hindsight's twenty twenty, sure, but seeing the events of 1066 unfold through the lens of this story can, pr can prove useful. Did Edward really ever have this vision? Well, probably not. Did Earl Harold financially support a mission to Ephesus near the Holy Land to prove the existence of the Seven Sleepers? Well, most likely not. But were tensions extremely high for England in 1065? Absolutely. And in the midst of hardship and tragedy, people look for someone in control. Someone who recognizes what's happening and can foresee a way out. Or at least warn of impending doom so one can prepare accordingly. Doom may be inevitable, but people overall prefer a heads up because it shows that someone 
or something is looking out for them. People needed to know that their long-deceased king saw the cosmic writing on the wall and tried his best to warn his earl about it. Again, the details may not be true, but that doesn't matter if the people feel comforted by the FOMA, as Kurt Vonnegut called it. That is, FOMA, the harmless, comforting untruths that people tell themselves to get them through tragedy. But the truth could have very well been Edward and Harold having difficult conversations about the threats to the English crown and people. They could have discussed Harold's alleged visit to Normandy and capture by Duke William and the consequences of the Duke's capabilities and ambitions. They could have discussed the Northumbrian situation with Earl Tostig beginning to lose grip there. Or even just the steady pressure by Scotland and Wales now. And who would have been in attendance for some of these conversations? Earl Harold's sister, Queen Edith. And who again commissioned the Vita Edwardi to be written in the first place? Again, that's right, Queen Edith. So commissioning a monk to write her husband's and her family's stories was a surefire way for a little religious propaganda. A vision would make Edward look downright saintly in the eyes of the medieval church. Yet another piece of evidence for naming him confessor. Having stationed himself on the Isle of Wight as a forward-serving reconnaissance officer of sorts, along with a small fighting force, King Harold Godwinson, over a year later in 1066, decided the Channel Weather just wouldn't cooperate for the Duke, so he disbanded his manned stations up and down the southern coasts and returned to London. While he did this, he heard of reports from up north, reports of a thunderbolt striking down the coasts of Northumbria, from Bamborough to the River Tyne and further south to the Humber. It was time to ride north, so King Harold of England called in levies on his way to Yorkshire. Meanwhile, the legendary figure of Harold Sigurdsson, now King Harold III of Norway, had recently left his capital of Oslo and sailed westward to the Orkneys, an island chain long populated by Norsemen and Scottish people north of Scotland. When he arrived there, he met his co-conspirator in this mission, the exiled brother of the King of England, Tostig Godwinson. Tostig waited there with a good number of ships, but nothing compared to King Harold Hardrada's colossal 200-plus ships. But remember, Tostig's original fleet had been much larger prior to his clash with Earls Edwin and Morcar, that sent him limping away to King Malcolm III of Scotland's court. And the only way, really, that Hardrada knew to arrive anywhere, which is to say, grandly, he met with Tostig, solidified plans, and set sail southward. He left his daughter, Maria Harold's daughter, who had been betrothed to one of Harold's most trusted warriors, Ora, as well as his wife, Elisive of Kiev, Queen of Norway. Sailing south, King Harold III of Norway probably couldn't help but review his life. He was, by this time, aged 51 years or so. He was still very much in his prime, which is unthinkable given his life story. It had been 35 years since he'd seen his half-brother, King Olaf II of Norway, fall to the forces supported by King Canute of Denmark and England. He'd seen the dangerous backwoods of Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Germany, and other Slavic territories out east as he escaped, wounded, to the court of his half-brother's one-time benefactor, 
Grand Prince Yaroslav the Wise of Kiev, father of the lady he was currently married to in 1066. He fought Slavs, Finns, Pechenegs, Khazars, Bulgarians, and other steppe peoples for a few years, only to rise in rank and then leave for the fabled Miklagard, a city known to all then and now as Constantinople, the center of the known world in the 11th century. He arrived in Constantinople roughly 30 years earlier, and for the next several years, Harold traveled to such faraway places as Baghdad, Jerusalem, Sicily, Apulia, and stretches of coastal Greece and mountainous trails through Bulgaria. He'd sailed the waters of the North Atlantic, the North Sea, the Baltic Sea, the Black Sea, and the Mediterranean. He'd smelled the salty breeze off the coast of modern-day Israel, inhaled the dry dust of the Iraqi and Syrian deserts, froze out on the highlands of both Anatolia and the rugged mountains of the Scandies in the far north, dripped untold buckets of sweat on the streets near the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and spilled blood from Sicily to Bulgaria, his own blood included. Baghdad to Kiev, Bulgaria to Denmark. He fought Muslim pirates on the waves off the coast of the Holy Land, as well as Muslim soldiers on the plains and hills of Sicily. He battled Latin Christian Normans in Apulia, pagan Pechenegs in modern-day Romania and Ukraine, Jewish Khazars out on the southeastern Russian plains, and Eastern Orthodox Bulgarians in the Balkan mountains. He slept in sheer terror and wounded in the Swedish backwoods as a young man, and within 15 years he was sleeping on top of the world, directly serving the Eastern Roman Emperor himself. Named Harald, he was known in many languages, namely as Araltes in Greek. He wooed the likes of the Empress of the Eastern Roman Empire, the ser then served beside the likes of William Ironarm and Drogo de Hauteville, as well as George Maniakes and King Olaf II, and he gouged out the eyes of the Eastern Roman Emperor Michael Caliphates. As reverential as it is to refer to Harold Hardrada as the last great Viking king, it's almost a slap in the face. Granted, much of his legend is brought to us by the works of a 13th century Icelandic historian and storyteller named Snorri Sturluson. But taking literary license, as I do from time to time on this podcast, in order to simply bring certain scenes to life, it doesn't negate the fact that each of Snorri's stories about Harald Hardrada are rooted somewhere in truth. We do, in fact, have records of Harald's escape from Norway to Kiev. We have the records of Araltes in Constantinople rising through the ranks and then escaping the city back north to Kiev by the skin of his teeth with untold riches and legends. And we know for a fact that the man who took over for King Magnus in Norway was the very same man who escaped Stickelstad so many decades before. Contemporaries loved this guy. Well, they loved the legend of this guy, but no one was too keen on meeting him, in battle or away from it. Nevertheless, the idea of Harald Hardrada, even while he was alive, was just simply irresistible. The German chronicler at the time, Adam of Bremen, called him the Thunderbolt of the North, while William of Poitiers quoted someone else describing the Viking warrior king as, quote, the strongest living man under the sun, end quote. 
the phrase, your reputation precedes you, could have very well started with this guy. So as the Norwegian king sailed into the mouth of the River Humber in modern-day Hull, with an unbelievably massive fleet made up of largely Norse berserkers who emulated the ferocity of the bear, and the Ulfethnar who emulated the cunning wolf. According to Chris Kershaw's The One-Eyed God, these two shamanic practices encouraged donning the skins and pelts of their totemic beasts and adopting their behaviors and fighting tendencies. They were certainly orders, it's worth stressing, military orders. These were not, to be very clear, merely mindless you know, creatures who carelessly ran into battle. No, there is a fine but distinct line between carelessly throwing oneself in battle and fearlessly throwing oneself in battle. And there was nothing mindless about these warriors. And it is said that Harold Hardrada, the man at the helm of thousands of these warriors, was himself of the berserker order. Sailing up the Humber, the Northumbrians no doubt watched for hours as over 200 Viking and Saxon warships, full of invaders, rode westward. Near modern-day Alkborough and Scunthorpe, two rivers, the River Trent from the south and the River Ouse from the east-northeast, converge, in fact, to create the Humber until the Humber flows into the North Sea. At this divergence, Hardrada directed his fleet toward the River Ouse, which will lead them straight into the prominent Northumbrian city and the former Earl Tostig's home base of sorts, of York. However, you can't sail hundreds of Viking longboats down the River Humber and not have someone ride to tell the Earl. So it was that, as Hardrada's landing his ships along the banks of the Ouse, near a village called Rickall, Rickall would be Hardrada's main invasionary camp, that the Earl's Morcar and Edwin were notified. Taking stock of the area and the situation, Hardrada and Tosta Godwinson no doubt knew that forces were currently forming against them. As they marched their thousand-strong army straight north toward York, they were met just a couple miles south of the city lines, in a sparsely populated place called Fulford. There was at first the impression from Tostig that York would fold immediately upon seeing a horde of Norse warriors led by a living legend. However, as they drew nearer, they saw on the west bank of the River Ouse an army emerge from the tree line. This army was led by Earl Morcar of Northumbria and his brother, Earl Edwind of Mercia. But there was another Earl who joined the fray who isn't normally included in the histories. See, a year or so earlier, in an effort to quell some of the division in Northumbria from the upset caused by Tostig and the usurpation, more or less, caused by Morcar's ascendance to the earldom, see, King Edward approved of another Earl within the kingdom. This new Earl was the second son of the deceased Earl Seward of Northumbria. If you remember, Seward led an army north into Scotland in 1054, resulting in a retreat as well as his firstborn and heir's death. When Seward died a year later in 1055, his second son, Waltheof, was just far too young to become earl, so King Edward promoted Tosta Godwinson to the earldom of Northumbria, making many in the north angry. Well, King Edward in 1064-65 promoted the now-grown Waltheof to the earldom of Northamptonshire and Huntingdonshire. So, Earls Edwin Morcar and Waltheof were there at Fulford leading men against Tostig and his Norwegian allies. 
It was September 20th, a Wednesday. Earl Morcar had already sent messengers to London to alert King Harold Godwinson, and they could only pray that their king would arrive soon, but that was quite a hike from London, to say the least. We're talking around 200 miles before the days of concrete roads and swamp draining projects. The farther north you marched, the harder and wetter the march became. In truth, Godwinson was on his way, collecting levies along the way, but as Edwin, Morcar, and Waltheof watched the invaders from the opposite side of the Ouse, they had no way of knowing when their king would arrive to support them. As far as they were concerned, if not now, when? So they drew up plans quickly. They would march into York, collect a few more soldiers, and then leave York through its southern gate, a place known as Fulford Gate. As the Northumbrian and Mercian forces arrived in Fulford from the north, Hardrada and Tostig arrived from the south. Both armies were now on the same side of the River Ouse, the east side. Marching to the south side of Fulford, the Northumbrians found themselves staring down the proverbial shotgun barrel of thousands of maniacal berserkers and Ulfethnir, as well as Flemish knights. At least the Northumbrians had a slight advantage. Fulford was an estate of Earl Morcar's, and it was strategically chosen as it was banked in on both sides, the west by the Ouse and the east by a large, nasty patch of marshland. Essentially, they meant to bottleneck the Norwegian king, but as if they were stripped straight from a classic Greek comedy, hubris came to rear its ugly head. Morcar had been emboldened by his recent defeats of Tostig during Tostig's Go It Alone campaign a couple months earlier, and as the armies were just finishing forming up, Earl Morcar saw he was opposite Tostig's Flemish mercenaries, and Tostig himself. So instead of letting the invaders step into the bottleneck, Morcar jumped at the opportunity to embarrass his foe once again. Morcar engaged first, and he was largely successful too. And as Morcar pushed Tostig's forces back, Hardrada probably smiled at the situation of being on the defensive, and he, in turn, charged headfirst into a clash with Edwin's Mercian and Waltheof's Northumbrian forces. As Edwin and Waltheof held their lines fairly well, Morcar seemed to have gotten the upper hand on Tostig's. However, it would be, it would be back-and-forth struggle for a very long time. Battles were, all things considered, pretty quick affairs a thousand years ago, especially when we're talking about armory, armies numbering in the thousands and not in the tens and hundreds of thousands, like you'd see in ancient Persia or in future wars. It was a brutal, brutal affair, Fulford was, to be sure. Eventually, though, Hardrada managed to gain the upper hand and then keep the upper hand, sending Edwin, Waltheof, and a few lingering contingents of soldiers retreating as quickly as possible back through Fulford Gate into the city of York. At that point, Hardrada turned his sights south, where, several hundred yards away, Morcar was beginning to overcome Tostig's Flemish men. In no time, Hardrada had bailed Tostig's forces out and sent Morcar with just a few trusted soldiers and a few stragglers into the marshlands to the east. They would find themselves, within an hour or so, stumbling, defeated, possibly wounded, into the walls of York. For the English... September 20th was a colossal failure. Later, Norwegian chronicles, biased though they are, mostly got it right when they said things like, Warriors lay thickly fallen around the young Earl Morcar. 
Bodies were indeed found downriver, as they no doubt tried to escape by swimming to the opposite bank, as well as bodies being found in the marshlands to the east. A dismal, dismal day, indeed. However, for Hardrada, this was merely the first of many successes, as far as he was concerned. Wasting no time, Hardrada marched on to York, a couple miles north. At this, Edwin, Morcar, and Waltheof escaped out of the western gate and rode to where they heard their king was headed. Inside York, Hardrada negotiated a peace with the people there, rather than attack and burn the place down. If he was to rule them one day, he might find it best not to alienate such important centers of trade and influence as York. The deal was simple. Hardrada gains control of York if he gives the city 150 of his warriors in exchange for 150 of their own people. Terms were accepted and the trade was to happen, sealing the deal for the city on September 25th. Now on September 20th, as Hardrada and Tostig marched the eight miles back south to their base camp at Rickhall, King Harold Godwinson was probably a few miles outside of London. However, by Monday, September 25th, the day of the trade, as Hardrada and Tostig formed up their lines to march to Stamford Bridge, where the people of York will solidify the deal, King Harold Godwinson astonished everyone then, as well as historians still today, by arriving outside the village of Tadcaster, just 12 miles from Recall. King Harold met with his defeated earls and getting up to speed about what happened at Fulford as well as what is to be expected from the Norwegians. He also learned about the trade occurring at Stamford Bridge and he immediately pushed onward, marching northeast through the city of York. The people there were no doubt shocked to see the tattered remnants of their earls' armies along with the ten to 13,000 fresh English soldiers following their king, all marching proudly to meet the fierce king of Norway. Arriving just after noon, they approached Stamford Bridge, and it's said that Hardrada, having positioned himself up on a nearby hill, saw great clouds of dust in the distance. York was in that direction, and there was simply no way that Earls Morcar, Edwin, and Waltheof's forces could have still retained enough men with which to create such a cloud on the road. He sent for Tostig, who was down off the hill preparing the men. It was a terribly hot day and very humid from the River Derwent, over which the bridge at Stamford Bridge crossed over. In addition, his men had fought bravely and valiantly, and as this was simply a parley and an exchange of prisoners, Hardrada and Tostig allowed the men to march the 16 miles without their heavy male armor and helmets weighing them down. Again, this was just the beginning of the invasion, so keeping his men fresh was the key to this mission's success. In addition, Hardrada had kept a third of his men, roughly 3,000 warriors to be sure, resting at Rickhall and guarding the ships. Hardrada and Tostig became increasingly curious as to what could be causing all of that dust getting closer and closer. Was it a surprise from King Malcolm III of Scotland, Tostig's on-again, off-again ally, who thought it best to join in the usurpation of the English crown? Or had the defeated earls somehow managed to raise another army in the previous five days, a feat almost unheard of? Men appeared on the horizon and steadily grew closer. No one, not Hardrada and certainly not Tostig, even managed to consider the possibility of it being King Harold Godwinson, 
as London was just too far away. However, to their utter astonishment, King Harold rode alongside his earls to meet with Tostig and Hardrada on the bridge to Parley, having averaged, if you can believe it, between 35 and 40 miles per day, a feat absolutely unheard of. Every account, whether accurate or not, though, seemed to agree that this was an intensely emotional exchange between these two brothers. But can we not take a moment to appreciate the other monumental meeting this entailed? Harold Godwinson, the King of England and heir to the House of Godwin, arguably the most powerful family line in Northern Europe at the time, is face-to-face with Harold Hardrada, King of Norway and living legend. Both men born into nobility, but where one stayed more or less a member of the aristocracy, the other had to escape into the mist, reappear, and establish himself through battle, and then return to usurp the crown. There in the middle of that bridge, with the waters of the Derwent flowing beneath them, King Harold offered his brother a pretty sweet deal. Should Tostig simply direct his horse across the bridge toward the English army, all of his sins toward the crown and kingdom will instantly be absolved. He would regain his old earldom of Northumbria, and to sweeten the pot, he would receive additional lands ultimately resulting in one-third of England itself. Tostig had a follow-up question. Should I accept this offer, what will happen to my Norwegian ally here, King Harold of Norway? And here, famously, Harold Godwinson is recorded as saying, quote, He shall receive seven feet of English soil, or maybe a bit more, as he is larger than most men. End quote. To which Tostig replied, quote, I will not be forever known as the man who led the Norse king to England, only to abandon and betray him and leave him for dead. End quote. The brothers parted ways for the last time, one walking west, the other walking east, both walking toward their warriors that they would soon launch at one another. And within minutes, they did launch themselves at one another. Norsemen held the bridge for a while, but they were forced to retreat back to the larger forces on the east side of the river. However, it's said that there was one warrior who had brought his male armor with him by chance, who was able to hold the bridge just a little while longer, hearkening back way back to the Battle of Malden, which one could say was the first volley in the eventual downfall of Anglo-Saxon England, when just three Englishmen held a legion of Viking berserkers from crossing the causeway from Northey Island to the mainland. However, unlike Malden, this Norseman was standing on a bridge, and legend has it that after he slaughtered over 40 English soldiers by himself, one Englishman waded into the River Derwent and from underneath stabbed the Norse warrior in the one place that his mail armor didn't cover. Um, just think about the demise of old Edward Ironsides, and you'll get the idea. At that, Harold pushed his entire army across the bridge and sent a vanguard of cavalry to pick off the slowest of Tostig's and Hardrada's forces as they all retreated to that hill that Hardrada first saw the English army approach on. As the Englishmen crossed, Hardrada sent a few riders as fast as possible toward Rickall to call all warriors to his side. He reasoned that if he could hold them off, then his reinforcements will arrive just in time. 
the English cavalry was actually forced to retreat after attacking uphill on the Norse army's left flank. And this seemed to be a green light for Hardrada because he ordered his entire force off the hill to charge at the enemy lines. For his part, King Harold spread his English forces, numbering as high as two to 3,000 cavalry and roughly eight to 10,000 infantrymen out, and Tostig's contingent slammed the section of shield wall directly in front of his brother, while Hardrada was also eager to get at the English crown and crashed into the shield wall to Tostig's right. And both contingents met with success for a time, the D-Chronicle describing it as, quote, unquote, a very stubborn battle. Hardrada's forces actually managed to push his portion of the shield wall so far back that King Harold Godwinson was forced to order reinforcements for that area. And as the reinforcements led by Hardrada's son-in-law, Eistein Ora, could see the dust from the battle in the near distance, all the air inside the Norwegian military balloon was let out when a stray English arrow punctured a hole through Hardrada's throat. And the legend fell there on the battlefield, never to rise again. Norse poet Arnor wrote of the seminal event, It was an evil moment. When Norway's king lay fallen, gold-inlaid weapons brought death to Norway's leader. All King Harold's warriors preferred to die beside him, sharing their brave king's fate, rather than beg for mercy. The death of Harald Hardrada marked a turning point in the North Sea, one that might have offered a counterbalance to the possibility of Godwinson's death at the hands of Duke William had Tostig not enlisted the ambitious warrior king in Norway to join him in England. This wasn't just the death of a legend, or the successful defense of a kingdom, or a feud settled between brothers. Stamford Bridge is often overshadowed by Hastings, and of course there are legit reasons for that, but Stamford Bridge must never be forgotten in the annals of world history as its implications rippled out farther than just England and Norway. Denmark was now free from its more than two decades of near-constant threat, which then also freed up Sweden to an extent as it no longer had an ambitious and well, incalculable king next door. Hardrada's death also amounted to King Harald Godwinson being alive to lead an army south in just a matter of days to meet Duke William. The cause and effect sequence of events stemming from this one battle cannot be discounted when looking at the development of England as a major power player in Europe and then around the globe over the next 10 centuries. So as those Norse reinforcements arrived on the battlefield a few minutes later, again led by Eistein Orr, running, and breaking for, running in, breaking any formation they were in before and filling in the gaps to help their comrades, during this time, Tostig Godwinson, too, fell, most likely within eyesight of King Harold Godwinson himself. The catastrophic shift in the balance of power there, along the River Derwent, resulted in the sudden collapse of Hardrada's army, Eistein Orr's falling as well. And legend has it that on the day of her father's and her betrothed deaths at Stamford Bridge, Way up in the Orkneys, Maria Harold's daughter also collapsed and died, where she and her mother were left to wait upon these two men's return. 
At this point, the remaining few hundred Norse and Flemish mercenaries now retreated south, running as fast as they could toward Rickall. King Harold, wanting nothing more than to shut down any further Norse dreams of invasion and return to London to mourn his tragic loss of his beloved brother, ordered all retreating opponents hunted down and killed. Mark Morris writes, quote, Some drowned, says the Chronicle, some burnt to death, and others died in various different ways, so that in the end there were very few survivors, end quote. But Morris continues, quote, the author of the Vita Edwardi, weeping for the death of Tostig, wrote of rivers of blood, the, quote, ooze with corpses choked, it said, and the Humber that, quote, dyed the ocean waves for miles around with Viking gore, end quote. And seeing another thousand or so men come to help Hardrada, King Harold realized that others were still likely at their camp at Rickhall. So the king ordered all of his men, as exhausted as they were, to march as fast as possible to Rickhall to end this invasion once and for all. Upon arriving at Rickhall, King Harold called a parley with the leading figure left there. The leading figure, it turns out, was Hardrada's own son, Olaf. Harold released the men back to Norway, if, and only if, they promised Norway would never attempt an invasion again. Olaf Haraldsson agreed, and of the 200-plus ships it took to bring that massive invasionary fleet to England, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles reported only 24 were needed to ferry the remaining men back home. 24. By all, and I mean all, accounts, Stamford Bridge was an unbelievably incredible testament to the leadership and resolve of King Harold Godwinson marching almost 200 miles in only five days, pushing another 15 miles the next day with an exhausted army, only to stand up to the likes of Harold Hardrada and defeat him on the battlefield, and then negotiating, if that's what you want to call it, a peace treaty, again, if that's what you want to call it, with Norway. I mean, what in this moment can you say about Harold Godwinson? As for Stanford Bridge itself, Morris concludes, quote, After the battle, the bodies of thousands of Englishmen and Norwegians were left in the field where they'd fallen. More than a half century later, or Derek Vitalis wrote that travelers could still recognize the site on account of the great mountain of dead men's bones. End quote. Returning to the battlefield, his remaining forces left at Recall until he returned. King Harold sent search parties out to retrieve his brother's body. According to William of Malmesbury, they recognized Tostig Godwinson's body by a wart found between his shoulder blades. As Morris explains, quote, the implications being that all the Earl's other distinguishing features had been too badly maimed, end quote. Harold brought his brother's body eight miles west to York and laid his brother Tostig to rest there in a solemn funeral. The highest moment of his life, defending England against not just a Norse invasion, but against a Norse invasion led by Harold Hardrada, of all people, brought low with the death of his estranged brother. It must have been a roller coaster of emotions for the king in late September 1066. However, while he was putting down one incredibly dangerous threat, another 
was occurring to his south. Yet Harold Godwinson had relieved his soldiers in the north after the battle to attend to the pacification of the area and to reestablish Earl Morcar with the necessary authority there. However, on the 1st of October, a letter arrived, and the king immediately fled York for London in great haste. So it seemed as if England came alive all at once. The threat from Tostig and Hardrada came as a complete shock, and there was simply no time to plan their defense out. That threat was nothing more than brute force reaction. However, King Harold had months to contemplate Duke William, and this was the challenge he was ready for. Except that instead of starting off on the Isle of Wight with a coastline of manned fortifications, or even half an army to ride south from London with, while Mercia, the Midlands, East Anglia, and the rest of Wessex mobilized, instead of those two reasonable possibilities, Harold was stuck in York with no real army to speak of and exhausted, exhausted knights at his side. <laughs> but it was time to move. King Harold was being challenged again, and he would not cower from it either. He was a man raised during a time of great pressure on his kingdom, and he accepted the crown knowing full well the threats it faced. These are not the actions of a man who will abandon his post, and he was supported by an overwhelming majority of Englishmen, having followed his career for decades. Not saying he was liked by all, hardly. He was a godwin after all, but he was respected. The English supported him in early autumn of 1066. As Harold moved south and William moved north, what would become known as the Norman Conquest of England was officially commencing. But such a name, the Norman Conquest of England, it just seems like an, an inevitability. And I challenge that notion. As the story unfolds here, the name certainly describes the accuracy of the eventuality. However, it was no foregone conclusion for either man before or even during the battle at Hastings. I hope you enjoyed today's episode about the death of the legendary Harold Hardrada and King Harold Godwinson's first major victory as King of England, not to mention the battle that, in hindsight, marked the end of the Viking Age. Please keep sharing the show in your favorite podcasting service, and please don't forget to contact the show at fortuneswheelpodcast at gmail.com with topic suggestions, questions, concerns, and even corrections. The link to the new website is up and running, so head over there for updated episodes and blogs and sometimes news too. Also, please consider supporting the show on Patreon or Anchor, or even just heading over to Apple Podcasts and leaving a five-star review. On the next episode, The Clash that will echo 1,000 years down to us today, will finally commence. It's simple, and it's epic simultaneously. And if Anglo-Saxon rule in England was going to fall, it would fall in an incredibly epic way, right next to an old apple tree on a hill near the beaches that 1,000 years earlier, Roman General Julius Caesar once beached. You know you can tell a lot about a person by how they spend their time, and I want to thank you for spending your time learning about our shared past here on Fortune's Wheel Podcast. Until next time.